the legal moves in the United States against the social media giant Meta over harm caused to children and young people. A total of 41 states have launched multiple lawsuits alleging Meta, the owner of Facebook and Instagram, has knowingly used features on its platforms that are detrimental to youth mental health. The biggest lawsuit filed by 33 states says Meta, and I quote, harnessed power and unprecedented technologies to entice, engage and ultimately ensnare youth and teens Its motive is profit, and in seeking to maximise financial gains, Meta has repeatedly misled the public about the substantial dangers of its social media platforms, The flurry of lawsuits comes two years after leaked internal research revealing Meta was aware of the impact it was having, particularly the toxic effect of Instagram on teenage girls. The revelations prompted calls around the world for greater regulation of the platform. So could this legal action prompt real change in how Meta operates? One of those watching closely and welcoming the development as history in the making is Frances Horgan. She was behind that leak of the Facebook files. She testified before Congress, the European and UK parliaments about the company's actions. Frances, thank you for your time. Happy to be here. You're welcoming these lawsuits. How significant a challenge will they be to Meta? And what do you think is going on right now inside that company as a result of these filings? One of the interesting things about how the filings have been structured is that unlike some previous lawsuits, the core of the complaint isn't just that these products are harmful. Um, it's that because, you know, in the past, uh, people have used first defense protections as a justification that, you know, these companies are allowed to conduct their business however they want to. The core of the filings is that Facebook knew these products were harmful and misrepresented them to the public. And what's interesting about that and, and the fact that many of the suits have actually been brought in state courts under consumer protection laws it is going to be like a it's going to be one of the first big cases where we're exploring this idea that digital products are products. You know, we have laws in the United States saying you can't misrepresent what what you're selling is or like what it what what kind of um, consequences that people will have from it. And I, I, I'm very excited to see how this will play out. So in some ways, it is consumer law uh, in play. Mm hmm. So in the United States, we've had a lot of challenges because of something called Section 230, which is um, uh, an, an immunity provision that was written into the law long before we ever had social media. So way back in 1996, uh, they said, you know, if we want to be able to have business models where companies feel empowered to host user generated content on the Internet, we need to give them some immunity such that because uh, like any given piece of information, it's not going to be economic for them to take a, a risk to host them. But in the time since 1996, we've, we've gone very different ways of distributing information to people. So back then, you know, you saw a piece of user generated content, if a person basically put it in front of you, you know, we had things like bulletin boards. Now companies have a lot more control, you know, they can write algorithms that choose what you get to see or don't see. And previous suits have said, hey, if you're choosing what we get to see or don't see, 
then you're you're making choices. Like you're, you should have to accept the consequences of those choices. You are, this lawsuit is you. You yeah, are to some way. extent editing, but I'm wary of going that route because yeah. I know there's another whole yeah. legal argument over whether these oh. platforms are publishers. But essentially, yes. you are you yeah. are controlling the product. Yeah, and so so the the and you are hitting the nail on the head. There is a lot of contentious conversations. Like just just earlier this year, the Supreme Court ruled in Google v. Gonzalez or Gonzalez v. Google um, that uh, you know you can't hold a platform responsible for its algorithms. And so this lawsuit is taking a different tack, saying you know Facebook knew that things it was doing were harmful to kids, and then they told the public our products are good for kids. And that's a very different article argument than saying, you know, your products are dangerous. So it's a different path to try and get at the issue. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's look at some of mm-hmm. the main allegations, and I'll get you to comment on them if you would. They're pretty, sure. they're pretty direct. The, the company engaged in, excle- in a scheme to exploit young users for profit by misleading them about safety features, about the prevalence of harmful content, harvesting their data, violating federal laws on children's privacy. But it comes mm-hmm. back to the knowledge of the action, a deliberateness about the action. Mm-hmm. So the, there's a saying in the United States, you know, the cover up is worse than the crime, right? So it's one thing to violate the law. It's another thing to go and try to hide the fact that you violated the law. And the, the reality is, like, often it can be easier to prove the cover up than it is to, to prove the crime. And so in this case, what's interesting is um, uh, for context for listeners who I'm guessing have not spent a lot of time with this 220 page case, um, I, there's a lot of it that has been blocked out. It's been redacted. And so we we only know a certain level of detail right now. And even that level of detail is pretty shocking. You know, like it's very clear from, from reading the paragraphs before and after these blocked out sections that there's going to be some incredible allegations that come out when we get an unredacted copy of this. Um, and it's. I think it's going to really change the conversations we have about social media. Incredible in that they will be very specific. There will be, uh, like, I'll give you an example. Uh, there's a paragraph where uh, it says, you know, psychologists are aware that when you have a ver- variable reward cycle. So that's um, the classic example is you have a rat where you only sometimes give it a reward when they press the press a little pedal so it only gives you like a little food drop sometimes when you press the pedal um you know the rat will end up continuing to press it even after you stop feeding them right it's like a it's it's compulsive and the 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 case itself says this is kind of like how slot machines work right you don't know when you're going to get the reward that's why slot machines are addictive um then you see uh four redacted paragraphs and then the next paragraph you can read says and yet Facebook continued to do this all the way until 2020, right? And so it's one of these things where it's like, uh, you know, I'm guessing when we get to see those paragraphs, it's going to be excerpts from Facebook's documents. That's why it's, that's why it's redacted right now. You know, they probably got it under subpoena. And they're documents talking about using variable rewards to get people to be more um, compulsive using Facebook. Like it's, it, I think it's going to be really, really amazing when we get to read Facebook's own recollections of these things. 
that's an important point you raise. There's discovery, of course, in any case. Are you saying that it's likely documents have been subpoenaed and, and have had to be passed over? And that's exactly for now. And so in the United States, the presumption is that uh, anything that is submitted to a court, uh, you know, if, it, if it's in uh, the public interest, that it needs to be opened up. And so we are right now in the process, like just, I think it was yesterday, they, that, that there was a motion filed to say, hey, this document is over half redacted. Like um, we are talking about uh, suicidality in children, right? We're talking about severe harm to children. There's a public interest concern in getting this information out so parents can know about it as soon as possible. Um, and I, I think I would be unsurprised if maybe as soon as next week, we are learning all sorts of new things from the words of Facebook's own documents in a way that's even more revealing than when I came out two years ago. Another line, state officials claim that the company knowingly deployed changes to keep children on the site to the detriment of their well-being, violating consumer mm. protection laws. Part two of that sentence is back to the nature of this case. Part one isn't just about, mm-hmm. oh, it had this effect, but we didn't know. It actually mm. is a proactivity allegation. Yeah. I'll give you an example. So one of the um, things that they point out in the case is that when the press was really bearing down on them immediately after I came forward last year or two years ago, um, Facebook rolled out that October um, a feature called Take a Break. So Take a Break said, let you say, like, you know, if I've been just mindlessly scrolling for 10 minutes, for 20 minutes, for 30 minutes, um, you know, remind me so that I can take a break. Um, As soon as the press cycle cooled a little bit, they changed the feature so the, sh- the the shortest break you could ask for was 30 minutes, right? Like they they originally, when they launched that feature, wanted to give people the option of taking a break after 10 minutes, but it almost certainly decreased how much time people spent on the site. And so as soon as people weren't looking too closely anymore, they upped that limit. Is there anything else from your study of the document that you would draw mm. attention to when it comes to specific harm and perhaps harm to young people mm. in particular. I think the the uh, one of the big ones that that I, I think we have to talk about is kids under the age of thirteen. Um, you know, there's lots of arguments amongst parents of like, you know, do we give our kids a phone? Do we let them on social media? You know, their friends are on social media. Like, do does that mean we have to have our kid on social media? So Facebook has publicly said, you know, we don't allow children under the age of thirteen. Um, if we find children under the age of 13, we take them on and take them down. And, the, you know, the document points out Facebook didn't even ask how old kids were until 2019. Right. And, and a detail that I wish they had included in there, because this is this is um, kind of a shocking fact. You know, and in 2019, they only started asking new accounts how old their users were, which is like really the barest minimum bar of how you keep an under 13 year old off. Right. Um, I, in, in 2021, it took until August 30th, 2021. So that's, a, you know, two weeks before the first article came out about this in the Wall Street Journal. Um, and it was after they had been asked for comment on that article. So it took press attention for them to actually say, hey, we need to know how old all the users are on our platform. And I just think that's a level of kind of... Um, uh, gross negligence 
right? Like they even come out there and say, we care about keeping children safe and then not even do the absolute bare minimum to try to keep young children off these platforms. What do the documents say about the effect of Instagram on teenage girls? Hmm. Um, so uh, one of the major issues uh, around teenage girls or around teenagers in general, though it seems to play out a little more intensely for young, girl, young women than for young men, partially because young men spend more time on games, is that uh, children's brains go through changes as they enter puberty. So uh, when you have a 10-year-old, an 11-year-old, um, you know, the, the, the big window of change is like 10 to 13. Uh, kids begin to get more dopamine and oxytocin receptors, which means they're substantially more susceptible to social cues. So I always like to joke, you know, uh, usually I'm addressing audiences of adults um, and I'll say, you know, no one in this audience will ever get a compliment as sublime as that, that a you know 12 year old girl can get, but will also never get a criticism again. That's as painful as what they receive right? Like their, their brains are more intensely wired um, during that period because, you know, from an evolution perspective, you want kids to start anchoring on their peers, right? And um, I usually say, thank God, right? I don't want to be a 12-year-old girl again. Um, but when that's applied in a system where criticism is permanent, right? Like it used to be if you wore lame jeans to school, and let's be honest, lots of us did, um, you know, that if someone criticized you, it disappeared, you know, it, it, it hurt in the moment, but it didn't linger in a world where, you know, you can see quantitatively how popular other kids are compared to you, or, you know, if someone bullies you, you know, you can go and obsess over that and see it over and over and over again, or just like, you know, kids can't escape bad experiences. You know, it used to be that most kids come from healthy homes if you were having a really toxic experience at school, you know, you got to come home and, and decompress for 16 hours before you had to go back and face it again. Now we have an environment where kids can't escape. You know, the last thing they see before they go to bed is someone being mean to them. They wake up and the first thing they see in the morning is someone being cruel. It's a very, very different environment. Um, than what kids have historically experienced. So link this back to the way this lawsuit, these lawsuits are being brought, mm. though, which is a consumer-based law approach. Yep. And again, are we seeing in the documents indications sure. that there will be evidence of knowledge of harm at the same time yes. as the company was saying, we care about this and we're deploying this and we're doing this? Yeah, so, so I'll give you an example of that. Um, so, uh, if you look at the testimony that Facebook, uh, was providing in, in the Senate, you know, right before I testified in the Senate, you know, you had executives coming out and saying, saying earnestly, like, you know, these products, you know, four out of five kids are fine, right? Like, like from a consumer protection perspective, you have a greater responsibility to say one in five kids is not fine, Right. If you come out there and say emphatically four out of five are fine, like, you know, parent, Facebook has a pattern and this is established out the, the lawsuit. They have a pattern of, of stating facts in a way that a, 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 an, an average and a reasonable parent would, would hear your child is fine. Your child is not in danger. You don't need to pay too much attention. And that's the core of the lawsuit. 
Francis, what would you compare it to when we think of mm. other addictive products throughout the years? Obviously, tobacco comes yeah. to mind. Uh, look, we, we're talking mm-hmm. about the, infa- the, the impacts of um, you know very highly processed foods. We can go on and on and say, look, we do things that aren't good for us because we have addictive natures and there's a hmm. balance between um, the, the, the regulatory responsibilities of the seller and the personal responsibilities of the buyer. Where in previous um, mm. prosecutions would you find mm-hmm. a parallel for this? I think that's a great. Um, so it's interesting. Like for for most other similar situations, um, we have not needed to rely on court cases because we had other forms of um, we were able to pass regulation. So I'll give you an example. You know, we have food labeling laws that say you know you have to tell us how much fat and sugar are in these things because we know fat and sugar taste delicious and uh you know products that uh you you can make people like your food more by putting more fat and sugar in it and so people deserve to consent to what they consume and yeah it's hard for people to regulate what they eat but at least they get a chance to make choices um what i think is actually it's going to sound extreme but i think actually the more equivalent parallel in terms of lawsuits actually is like the opiate uh, class action lawsuits so if we were to look at when was the last time you got this wide an array of uh, state attorneys general to um, like all come together, you know, in the United States, it's very hard for people on the left and right to agree to things. And 41 attorneys across the political spectrum came together on this lawsuit. Um, you know, this happened with opiates and the the core criticism in the Purdue Pharma case was that Purdue Pharma made um, statements that implied that their drugs were less addictive than other opiates. They um, quoted medical research that was not like it was was actively misleading. Um, and then they did things like organize lobbying efforts to say, hey, like don't don't take away the benefits from all the responsible people. Right. We hear we sometimes hear this as a talking point of like, isn't this, isn't this just the parents' fault? Or think of all the kids that are benefited by social media. Like, you know, what about them? Um, and the reality is like, there are lots of experiences in society where we say, hey, it's not, it's not enough to you know, generate value for, for most people. We need to have a conversation such that we can begin to harm reduce the people who are being harmed. And it's not a binary, binary either or. This is not a question of like, should we not let kids on social media at all? It's a question of things like, should kids be on social media after 10 or 11 o'clock at night? Should kids be on social media during school hours? Because in the United States, things have gone so bad that there are now schools that confiscate all phones every single day because they literally cannot maintain a classroom environment because kids are having so much trouble regulating their usage of their phones. It's about to be introduced here by an incoming government, apparently, Francis. Francis Horgan is our guest. She released the Facebook files and is a whistleblower who testified before Congress, the European and UK parliaments, about Meta's actions, the owner of of Facebook and, of course, of Instagram. You're listening to Nine to Noon on RNZ National. We're talking about uh, this uh, case brought by a total of 41 states. They've launched multiple lawsuits, actually, against Meta, the owner of Facebook and Instagram. And this is based on, on consumer law this time. 
online that it had knowingly used features on its platforms that are detrimental to youth mental health that cause harm uh, without uh, making that known. In fact, it's argued doing the contrary. Francis, just while we've got you, there's a couple other things I want to talk about, and, and one of them is what you would do if you could have you say to the way these big platforms operate, because you've got YouTube as well, you've got TikTok, uh, and on and on. Uh, we've just possibly got to get Francis back, have we? Okay, uh, I'm talking to Frances Hawke and just reminding you, she um, was the, the Facebook whistleblower. She has uh, appeared before the Congress in the United States, testified there, also in front of the European and UK parliaments about the company's actions. She actually uh, came to the company on the basis of working on its algorithms and other potential protections. 